Start a Brewery podcast, where we discuss all things relating to startups, open, and growing breweries from concept to execution. We are pleased to partner with All About Beer to bring you this podcast. If you're joining us today for episode 20, Building Your Business Plan, Getting Into the Numbers, Part 2. I'm Laura Lodge, here with Candice Moon, and we're excited to welcome you to our ongoing podcast journey. As your hosts and founders of Start a Brewery, we both have extensive experience in our areas of specialty. Candice is the craft beer attorney, having worked with more than 500 brewery clients over time, and my background is a mix of distribution, event planning, and craft beer education. You can find more information about us and our contributors, plus a whole bunch of information and resources at startabrewery.com. Unfortunately, Candice is unable to join us today, and we'll be back in action for our next episode. This will be episode 20, Building Your Business Plan, Getting Into the Numbers, Part 2. As you could probably tell from the close of episode 19, we had a whole bunch of territory that we still wanted to cover with Audra and Carrie, and they have been gracious enough to offer their time and expertise for another round of discussion today. We've had this happen a couple of times where the conversation just kept rolling and we didn't want to stop. So for those of you who very legitimately were expecting to hear about marketing today, hold that thought for another two weeks. It's still coming. There was a lot of information covered in the last episode about approaches and steps to take early in business plan preparation mode, and we ended up by talking about precautionary planning in light of the pandemic stresses we all just went through. So let's pick up there and continue forward to include information that would apply to expansion projects and or top-level stuff that breweries should be doing as best practices once they are open as well. So enough intro, let's get down to it. Um, I am pleased to welcome back to the table today, Audra. Gajunas, brewed for her ledger. I was close on the pronunciation. Carrie Shumway, financial, craft brewery financial training and beer business finance. So for those who didn't necessarily get to listen yet till last week, um, if you'd both do a quick intro, Audra, you want to start us off? Sure. I'm Audra Gajunas, brewed for her ledger. I am a fractional chief financial officer for the beer industry. From the supplier side, um, my main contract right now is Crooked Stave out of Denver. So I am their fractional CFO. Um, but I also work with other breweries from coast to coast. Since I started my own company in 2013, I've worked with almost 400 breweries now by this point. Most of them are startups and expansions. Prior to owning my own consultancy, I was the controller at Dogfish Head and the Chief Financial Officer of Mother Earth Brewing. I also teach through the University of Vermont, through University of North Carolina, Charlotte, Nashville Buncombe Tech, and I am a frequent speaker at State Guild conferences and a seven-time speaker at the Craft Brewers Conference on the national level through the Brewers Association. Sweet. Carrie? And I'm Carrie Shumway, and I'm a CPA, CFO, former CFO for a beer wholesaler, current CFO and partner for a brewery. So it's getting to see different sides um, of the two of the three tiers of our of our uh, system. So I started about five or six years ago, kind of writing down what I had learned and putting out articles and blog posts, and then ultimately creating courses, and then doing webinars and podcasts and whatnot, basically just financial training for the beer industry. So it's a lot of you know, a la carte, you go to craft brewery financial training, search for a topic, you know, hopefully it's going to pop up there for you. So just a lot of, you know, general information. Um, we've recently started the Beer Business Finance Network, which is, it's an association for beer industry financial professionals um, to really bring people together to kind of work on a peer-to-peer 
working through, you know, best practices, overcoming business challenges and, and whatnot. So I kind of facilitate those meetings and, you know, try to get folks to interact with one another to try to try to solve problems. So people can learn more about that at craftbrewerryfinancialtraining.com or beerbusinessfinance.com. Excellent. And you have a podcast. And the podcast, of yeah. course. Yes. On all of your major podcast directories, I think. Podcast world. Let's yeah. assume that. I'm assuming that this is available on all podcast world as well. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and I give all of that credit to John Holland and all about beer because that's not my thing. Um, so let's let's dive back in. Audra, if you'll catch us up, kind of recap just a little bit. You mentioned last time about several different informational pieces that breweries should prepare before they meet with you. Would you go through those one more time and just describe briefly um, those pieces? Sure, absolutely. So most of the time when a startup brewery approaches me, they don't really have any of the numbers down. They, they have a story, though. They have their vision, their mission. They may have gotten started on the narrative portion of their business plan, and they may have a very good idea of what it is that they want to bring to the community They can verbalize it, but they can't put it into numbers. So I ask that they bring whatever narrative pieces they have, branding collateral, giving a sense of your vision, your mission. We usually sit down for an hour as a kickoff call and walk through the pieces that they do have that are knowns. So what size brew house are you going to be going with? Um, Are you going to be having your own canning line? Are you going to use a mobile canner? What size tap room are you going to have? How many seats? Is there a beer garden? Is there any indoor outdoor space? Parking? Give me a sense of your vision from the perspective of your offerings. So food, is that going to be offered? Um, Is that going to be done on site as part of the overall operation or are you going to outsource the food component? Utilities, Where? what's your location? What's your target location? What are we looking at so that I can pool utilities information, or if this is going to be potentially a lease space, who's the landlord? Can we get some actual utilities numbers from the space as they currently exist so that we can have something to start with? Who's the leadership team? Who's part of the advisory council? Obviously, none of us have expertise in every single area. So who are we going to have and how are they going to slot into the leadership team in providing us the help in areas of where we are weak? Um, merchandise is not usually a big piece, but if you have merchandise, come on, bring it over. We'll, we'll work that into the plan itself, but more or less, I really want to have a really good, strong sense of the business and economic model. So we're going to walk through sales mix by product type, wholesale, retail. Um, so all the different styles, I usually start with five to eight different styles that they want to brew, that they're going to start preparation with. Tap room distribution, is it going to be retail? How much so that we can come up with an approximation of, let's say of a thousand barrels that we're going to initially brew within the first year. Is it going to be a 60-40 split between retail and wholesale or is this going to be primarily tap room driven? And maybe we'll venture out in a wholesale if we have surplus beer. These sorts of questions. So I wanna look at styles of beer, package types, kegs, keg sizes, cans, are they going to be 12 ounce? Are they going to be 16 ounce? And then that whole retail versus wholesale, what is your vision? What do you want to do in the first 36 months? Because when I walk away from this startup after our initial kickoff call, 
I want to be able to create 36 months of projections from the profit and loss perspective, as well as the cash flow perspective. So the more specific you can bring me the information in terms of product type, batch cost, how you're going to sell the products, and then any other ancillary activities that are going to take place on site, the better my first draft is going to be that uh, we can walk through then together. So Give me at least the narrative portion of your business plan. Give me an idea of your vision, what the location is going to be. At least proposed state would be a good start. I did just start working with a startup that went from California to North Carolina. So we had to shift the economic model quite a bit. But <laughs> did they decide they Nashville. wanted to be next door in Asheville? Is that what happened? <laughs> they, there was an opportunity that arose that was a surprise for them. So we had to pivot the model very quickly. So I went from California utilities, California excise tags, what is allowed in the state of California to all North Carolina law and North Carolina excise tax and different types of accounts. And now we're going to be a lot more tapering focused. So that happened on the turn of a dime and that was a surprise. But that's what happens within this industry. We just have to be able to be nimble and adapt quickly. And so the models that I like to build allow us that sort of opportunity. So it's not a one-time only academic exercise of where you have assumptions that have been built in around a very specific way. Um, the more successful your model is going to be will, be, will be dependent upon how flexible it is. So the key when you're starting to build your projections is the, the flexibility they're going to allow and have within the design of the pro forma. So if your location changes or your economic model changes, you can fly things in and out very quickly to meet those adapting conditions. Gotcha. Carrie, any notes about pivots like that? Have you had anything that dramatic happen with somebody you're working with? Um, not, not geographically necessarily, but I think, you know, path to market, they'd be like, well, we think we're going to do food. We're not sure. And then all of a sudden they're going to put in a full kitchen. So I agree with the flexibility of the model. I think, so ideally, you'd have a model that can uh, accommodate a lot of these different changes, and then you'd be able to adapt it. And furthermore, to have something you can hand off, you know, to the client at the conclusion of the engagement so that they can continue to use it because stuff changes and they're going to need, you know, you get into business and all of a sudden your model's like, well, you know, I like the structure of this, but, you know, our assumptions here, here and here are, we're off. I need to, and then you can put it into once you're up and running, you know, if you're using an accounting package you know, you can use that because most of these models, at least the ones that I do are in, are in spreadsheets. And then you can, you can sort of get it in the spreadsheet. Okay. I like these numbers. Now I want to put this into, you know, QuickBooks or whatnot so that I have a budget that I can track against. Um, so I think having something that's, you know, usable for the purposes for which it's intended, if you're trying to get a loan or work with the bank, but then also to be able to, you know, to run the business and, and track and, and see how you're doing. Yeah, we we just had a situation where uh, the farm brewery I'm working with had decided they would add food a couple of years down the line. And all of a sudden, one of their closest friends said, I'll do barbecue. And so from day one, all of a sudden, there was a whole shift that way, which has turned out to be awesome. But um, got to move all those expenses up and get ready for it, too. So that's right. Yeah. Interesting to do. Um, so thank you for that. So Carrie, when working with breweries that see extreme seasonality, and I live this a lot in Colorado, 
How do you recommend that they manage their cash flow and projections to be both realistic and understandable as practical and positive to a lending officer? I think you see that in New England as well. We do. I mean, it's, you know, we basically hear it's, uh, you know, the first quarter and the fourth quarter are kind of tough and the two quarters in the middle are, are pretty good. So you sort of have to make your hay in the, in the summer. But, you know, typically New England and cold weather, you know, first January, February, March can be can be difficult. So number one, you just have to kind of recognize that going in, it sort of stands to reason. But, you know, once you start doing your financial projections, then, you know, you really need to, you know, do the math on those things. And so the models, I mean, to Audra's point, you really want to do these on a monthly basis for at least the first 12, ideally the first 36 months. So you can kind of track this out. So, you know, all of your PL and your cash flow models really should be on a monthly basis. And they should take into an account the fact that, you know, January is going to be a tough month uh, and July is going to probably be pretty good. Now, if you're in other areas where you're, you know, you're more, more winter tourists, you, you can just kind of reverse this. But I think the concept would be, you know, number one, to be aware of it, two, to have a model that it can accommodate it. And we just use, we can you do some simple math like January through December, you know, 100% of my sales and margins, and they're going to occur within those months. But what percentage is going to fall you know, say in the first quarter, second, third, you can kind of spread it out that way. So if you're doing kind of an annual plan um, and you're doing your annual sales forecasting, you can you can do it by percentages if that's easier. Uh, we'll see that a lot, but you're going to learn as you go. You know, and I think as far as realistic goes, um, you know, your bankers are looking to, to you to make sure that you've got good underlying assumptions for what you're building in there. So seasonality is one thing, but then it's also the, you know, what are the metrics that you're using to compute, you know, your sales forecast, for example, you know, and if you're working with a lender that's has other, you know, brewery clients or beverage alcohol clients, they're going to have a pretty good sense as to, you know, what a revenue per barrel should look like, or, um, you know, how many, how many tables you're going to turn through your tap room in a given period of time, or how many customers could reasonably walk in. So you want to have those underlying assumptions pretty well dialed in. And that can be, um, you know, by, by doing research on it, it can be by talking with other, you know, taproom breweries in your area. You can use some restaurant data. There's tons of data out there, but I guess the point is a realistic, a realistic, um, set of numbers has got to have some good, good grounding in, um, you know, those metrics that, you know, that we see out in the market. Do you ever see lenders be flexible enough to say, okay, let's, let's make the payments more during the busy months and less during the slower months. Is that kind of flexibility a thing? That's an interesting question. The answer is I haven't. And typically these, the loans will amortize on a, a consistent basis. You know, you get a monthly payment. Um, but no, that's that's a good point. No, I haven't seen that. Have you seen that? Have you seen it, Audra? I've seen it with private shareholder loans. So, or private loans that are done. Not typically with a bank, but if you do have somebody that's coming aboard that is not necessarily going to be an equity investor, but they do want to loan some money to the business, they're going to take second position after the bank they'll be a lot more flexible. Um, I also worked a deal where there was a brewery that wanted to buy the space that they were in. And so they worked out a deal that was similar to that with the property owners and all the payments that they were making were going towards their equity piece of their buyout. So that 12 months from now, when we create the refi the deal, go to the bank and refinance that, the portion that they had paid for that time period to the property owners were going to be credited towards their equity. 
And that was tied to their sales numbers. So they were paying more during the fast season and less during the slow season, but it still turned out to be roughly the same overall. So rather than peanut butter spreading a fixed amount, let's say 36,000 for the year, they had, they were paying less during the slow months and more during the, the fast months. And that way we were just able to pull from previous data with the startup. If you can find any sort of comps or any sort of actual activity from breweries within that same metropolitan area, and that's pretty common for me, that's what I do. So let's say I'm working with a brewery in Charlotte or I'm working with a brewery in Sacramento or in Denver. I have breweries that I've worked with in those areas. So I can just look at their numbers and without giving away the numbers, I know what the seasonality is going to be. And I can apply that same sort of seasonality to this particular startup. And if the bank asks, it's based on actual data that we've seen within the actual city that work area that we're planning on opening. So that's my approach to the realistic piece of it. Um, let's see. And then from the startup perspective, also, I make sure that those cash flow numbers that are 12 month projected to 36 month projected when we make changes within the model and say, well, we can't make this amount of barrelage. And once we apply the seasonality factor to it, if it dips their cash flow into the negative range of where they're starting to cash flow negative, that gives us a sign too that regardless of how well we're doing in the summer, we can't dip below a certain level in our cash flow in the winter. So we know that we have to make at least this many barrels of beer to survive the winter. And so honing in, on the cash flow piece of it, I find to be extremely important, especially as a startup, to ensure that they don't run out of cash during that first or second slow season. Yeah. The other thing you can look at, it doesn't really speak to your question, Laura, but it's um, you typically recommend they think about getting a line of credit. So in these extreme seasonalities, what it, what you may see, particularly in New England, is you've got this sort of inventory build that happens in, say, March and April, and then you start selling in May, June, and July. And during the point of that inventory build, um, you're consuming a lot of cash because, you know, you know you're going to, you know, cash in on it. But you, so there are times where you can ride out those those cash flow seasonality swings via a line of credit. It's not something you want to you know, be dipping into 12 months out of the year, but maybe in those lower uh, cash flow months, it's good to have. Cause yeah, the last thing you want to do is, well, I have no, I have no cash or access to capital. I'm kind of stuck. So that can, that can be a useful tool to have in your financing toolkit. Totally. 100%. Okay. Back to you, Audra. How do you see the participation of investors or a board of directors play out throughout the creation of a business? Have you worked with startups that have very engaged investors or board members that have maybe an outsized effect on the business plan contents, direction, projections, and presentation? And if so, is this a good thing? What's funny is that most of the investors that say they want to be engaged and participating within the business really aren't until after the business is open. That's what I'm usually finding. I'm starting to hear from them only when things are moving either south or not to their expectations, when their expectations weren't necessarily verbalized, nor were they part of the startup process. So um, <laughs> I don't know if it's a communication issue or whether they just see themselves participating once the business is open. But 
I don't see that much engagement unless it's a managing member who is also a majority investor who, of course, is going to participate in the entire process quite fully. But let's say it's a 20% or less um, investor that is a silent partner. I usually don't really hear from them very much um, within the startup process. I may communicate the projections to them. We may talk through the project, but it's as almost almost like I'm a surrogate instead of them um, until the project is open and then they become engaged and then they lend their services. So maybe it's just been my experience. And, you know, even though I work with a lot of breweries, I don't see investors being as engaged, mostly because it's not their area of expertise. They wanted to get into the beer industry. They may love beer. They may see the promise behind the particular owner or head brewer that is creating the recipes but they may not have an understanding of the industry at all. And so they remain silent until the business is open. And then they start to provide some feedback. But the investors that have been engaged are usually the brewers. And I make sure that they are very well understanding of their own numbers, their economic model. They have at least the basic financial literacy of financial and accounting terms but they could speak on the same level as a bank. So they understand what the debt service coverage ratio is. They know what liquidity and efficiency ratios mean, how those are calculated so that they can defend them or continue to expound upon the numbers if a bank is asking. But having at least a baseline financial literacy to speak with the bank, they're the ones that have to sell the plan. It's not going to be me or Carrie or anyone that is helping create that model for them. It's going to be the owners themselves. And I have had multiple attorneys who are very intelligent people, um, but they are one of the startup people, uh, owners uh, within a particular brewery, and they just don't have the understanding of the numbers. So it's just getting everybody onboarded and looking in the same direction. They have the legal side down, but now they have the, they need the numbers side down. So a little fast track education really goes a long way. Um, I don't know, Carrie, have you experienced anybody from the investment side, from the startup side that like, all right, I'm going to run with the direction and, and have a greater influence to the bank? I think um, I've seen it work really well and seen it work really poorly. Um, <laughs> so I think well, this, this when you were talking, it kind of reminded me, I think Lauren, you and I had talked about this at CBC as sort of the, um, how to kind of build your team. Um and we were talking about it more from the standpoint of sort of out, you know, your outside CPA, your outside attorney, your outside banker, et cetera. But the same is applicable to your internal board of directors or even management team. So I think the ones that I've seen work well, which frankly are in the vast minority, is when everybody kind of understands roles and responsibilities and brings different skills to the table. So, for example, you might have that attorney who's an investor but is really special can specialize not so much in the numbers, but in, you know, the legal nuances of what needs to be, we have to, uh, you know, choose our legal entity. We have to do our filings. We have to do X, Y, and Z. And maybe there's someone who's been um, in banking. So they understand, you know, how to get the proper capital structure. And maybe there's someone who's obviously more on the production side or supply chain management. So you can see these really cool, Again, it's rare, but you can you can see these really cool combination of skill sets where people can work together. Um, so I think the more often what I see, I think, is what you're saying, Andrew, which is you've got one or two people that are kind of running the show and then maybe five or six or seven 
investors who play uh, mostly a silent role, but might come in every now and again to, you know, to weigh in on a particular topic. And it doesn't mean it's good or bad. It's just, that's kind of the way it's structured. So I would probably sum it up just by saying, you know, I think it's your operating agreement, your partnership agreement's only going to take you so far in terms of all the legal nuances. You may, you may just want to have a secondary conversation with, you know, your board of directors or your leadership team or your investors to say, what, what do we all bring into the table here? You know, how can we work together, um, you know, to really leverage everybody's skill set? Because we're going to we're going to need them. So that's that's kind of how I've thought about it. But it's it's challenging because everybody kind of wants to everyone wants to be involved in uh, making cool beers. Yes. Yes. And I can totally understand people becoming involved all of a sudden when there is liquid in the glass. Yeah. Um, I, I think that's the time when a lot of people step up and say, oh, uh, my my due, it's it's owed. Um and I, I think that that's, that's kind of funny. Um, so Carrie, whether at the very beginning of the business plan development or after it's open, how do you recommend the ownership and leadership? And maybe this brings us back a little to the board of directors piece here. How do you recommend that people approach working together to prepare review and then react to their financial forecast and reality? This brings us more into being open uh, and doing business, but more into how do you work together? Yeah. Well, I think it starts with just having good good process to get good numbers. So we got to start with, you know, some sort of, you know, written policies on, you know, who's, who's, who's doing what to get to the numbers in the right place, you know, and that there's simple checklists on that, like, you know, who's, who's recording the receivables, who's collecting the money, who's paying the payables and who's reconciling the, you know, bank accounts and who's looking at the balance sheet and what is the timing with which we're doing all these things. Cause there has to be a certain, I think we, we may have talked about it this last time, but, um, you know, we when you're brewing beer, it's a very specific series of steps and you have to do them in a certain order and you have to do them in a certain time and you have to have checks along the way. And you're looking at your quality control and you wouldn't dream of brewing beer without doing those things. And the same process has to be brought to your financials so that you have good numbers to work with. So that's that's just table stakes is you've got to have a good understanding of how those numbers get into your system, how are you capturing things that are occurring, transactions, and getting those into your accounting system. Uh, many breweries will have brewery management software, which then will connect with an accounting software. So they're transacting, you know, production cycles and whatnot, and that's flowing through and, you know, being quantified and captured. That That's the best way to do it. Others will just have, you know, we're using QuickBooks, but we've got, you know, brew sheets and spreadsheets, and we 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 figure out how to get it. Okay, that's fine too, but you get have more checks and balances to make sure it's in, going in the right bucket. So that's first is just good process. Next is what's the frequency with which you're running these reports and, you know, who's reviewing them and then what are they comparing them against? So we have this very basic, like what actually happened? How does that compare to the budget or the financial plan that we had? Where are the variances? And then how, how what do we, so to the to the question of sort of read and react is we've identified maybe some variances, maybe expenses are running high or sales are running low. Okay, well, what's causing those? Can we figure it out? And then what are we going to do about it? So as we're reviewing these on a regular basis, you know, sort of identifying here's the gaps, here's what we think is causing it, here are the things we're going to do differently. So I think it's ex it's extremely simple to say, and it's a lot hard. I don't see a lot of breweries doing it, frankly, where 
because we don't we don't have time. We don't have time. You know, it's, once you run the numbers, you, you just have to make time. I, I did some couple of articles on this recently that, you know, the, I think the most important part, they're all important steps, but the most important part is actually analyzing what's happened and doing something about it. It's like if you set a goal, ah, shoot, I missed the goal. Well, why'd you miss the goal? And what are you going to do in order to to do something differently? All you have is, you know, the next minute, hour, day to, to kind of correct what you need to correct, but you need to identify where are we, where did we think we we're going to be, and then how do we how do we close those gaps? So I think it's it, it's beneficial, I think, to have kind of some these timelines and deadlines and responsibilities. Who's going to do what? And then to stick to that. And there's many different ways to kind of do those meetings. You know, I really like, you know, Audrey and I did a CBC presentation a couple of years ago on open book management. We talked about these financial huddles, you know, where I was, I got to do this in the past and it was one of the the joys of my week, you know, you pull together all the department managers and you literally construct the financial statements. So where, where are we right now? And you do it each week. So it's, you know, it's, you're building that muscle all the time. Your salesperson is telling what sales are and your, maybe your inventory, your purchasing person is talking about cost of goods and so forth. And you can kind of see, and everybody's contributing to this, creating this puzzle because uh, they're all responsible for different aspects of it. So for me, that's almost like the the pinnacle of of what can work best uh, to try to you know read and react and improve and you know figure out what's going on in your your brewery financially. It sounds like maybe some unconditional structure is needed to make sure those things are happening. And I I think everybody's too crazy. And yeah, okay, maybe we missed the goal, but we don't have time to talk about that right now. We need to keep going. Right. Um, any additional thoughts there, Audra? Um, yeah, along with the standard operating procedures about protocol and numbers, also have a communication plan. Set up a communication plan that matches alongside the numbers. So how are you going to communicate? What communication platform are you going to use? How regularly are you going to communicate? What does the communication look like to the investment team um, versus the leadership team versus internally? If milestones are reached or particular trigger events are are hit how do we communicate that within our community whether it's going to be internal leadership team or investment team so that really starts from the startup perspective and then moving forward like let's say in the startup side we just communicate to the investment team once a month and we talk about where we are in the build-out process how much money have we spent um, how close are we uh, to budget for our initial project capitalization basically our startup budget spent versus what we have left and then once we transition to open what does the, the communication platform look like then like for example Cricket Stave we use 90 which is based on um, open book management uh, a facet of open book management and we have pieces of that that are communicated to the investment team that is outside of the leadership team as well so you have an open book management platform where you have people that are involved within and are pulled within the regular meetings so they can view all of the key performance indicators, the variances, what actions are being taken. And I know that 90, like if you have goals that you have set, if you miss it, it turns red. If you've made it, it turns green. And then at the end of going through the entire scorecard, we look at the red buckets and 
IDS them, which is identify, discuss, and solve. So you're basically walking through each red component and coming up with an action plan together as a team to rectify that and turn it into the green. What does it look like? Was this a temporary blip? Um, is this a downward trend just for the month and we anticipate it to pop back up again next month? Is one brand of beer that we just released cannibalizing and sales of another one that we were measuring and now that number is consistently in the red? What are we going to do about that number? Are we going to transform that brand as part of a variety pack now? Or is that going to be a recipe going to be reformulated? Things like that then become part of an open discussion. And you can bring in as many people within the leadership team and or of importance that you feel that should be there. And then summarize those weekly meetings. This is what we do at Kirk Day we, we Weekly. Um, you can have a monthly communication that goes out to the investors that summarizes your four weekly meetings and what the key performance indicators were. Did we make them? Did we miss them? And then make sure that you have an offer and opportunity for questions um, so that the, the leader, the entire leadership team feels that they're accountable in some way, they have buy-in in some way, but that also they have been given a voice and that they have been heard. And that to me is very important as well. Too often we communicate downward. And so it's top-down communication. We may say that we want feedback, but we don't really do anything with it. So when we bring in and ask questions on a regular basis and provide a platform, like whatever that communication platform may be, it gives an opportunity to, to lend their voice and to truly feel like they have been heard. It's not going to be email going one way. It's going to be being part of an entire meeting and an opportunity to ask questions. So that can be monthly. That could be quarterly. Maybe in the beginning, you only need to you do, it, do it monthly. And then once you're set on a track, you switch it to quarterly. But again, that comes back to setting up a communication plan. And not enough breweries do it. And most of the time when I walk in and do a, uh, perform an operational audit, the symptoms all lead to the same sickness, um, so to speak. And that is a breakdown in communication. So I think that's one of the biggest weaknesses we have as an industry. We don't communicate well. We don't spend the time to develop a communication plan in the beginning. So it breaks down very, very quickly when we're moving at warp speed, whether it's in one direction or the other, you know, positive or negative. So uh, spend that time to create that communication plan. How are you going to communicate? Figure out what that platform looks like and how regularly you're going to disseminate that information to Carrie's point. I see that I've got um, two brewers that or two brewers, two partners that function primarily face-to-face -face only in the craziness. I've got one that is um, really uh, not good at texting or anything written. <laughs> And I have one that functions almost all on written and emails and more um, admin sort of approaches to communication. And I think even if you pull in, uh, Matt from Duckfoot was talking about having, uh, I forget what he was calling it, but more like a Slack sort of communication channel where everybody could communicate mm -hmm. with everybody and see everything that was going on. And that was a big improvement for them. It made me think if everybody functions that way, it would work. But if somebody doesn't operate that way, you're losing some pieces. They're not going to know what's going on and they're not going to have a voice. So I think that's, that's really interesting. So that, that kind of takes me into that next question of where do you usually see the pieces coming off the rails, Audra? And it sounds like that communication is fundamentally 
um, the challenge. It also sounds to me like maybe having some external accountability, whether that's to partners or to lenders or to, um, you know, your own consultants and your own people have said, you know, that you need to say, hey, I need this guidance and accountability in order for us to be able to have these systems in good working order. Otherwise, we are just a hot mess and we don't get there. Right. Yeah. I, I mean, I have brewers that don't use email almost at all. They're on the production right. floor all the time. But if they have Slack and they have that app, they don't have to go into email. They don't have to check email. They get notifications when their particular silo, so to speak, or notification goes off within uh, that needs their attention. Or it's, could be, it could be text, but it, that just needs to get defined at the beginning. Um, the sooner, the better. And then coming up with a plan of how that is communicated, how is feedback received, knowing that we all have different ways that we process information, that we respond to information, and everybody's role being so different. Sometimes it's not easy to use one platform, but then you have like what Carrie calls huddles too, and weekly leadership team meetings, whatever those may be, where we do sit together face-to-face or via Zoom, if some of us are distant, like I am, you know, on my weekly meetings, I'm in Denver once a quarter. I'm never there more often. But regardless of what I'm doing and how I'm going and how I'm communicating, we all meet via Zoom for one hour every single Thursday at the very, the very same time. And that works for us. I feel like I'm still part of the brewery and I'm more of a texter. And other people are more emails. I don't check my email every day. I'm just, I'm running too fast to be able to do it. But if somebody's going to text me, I will turn my attention to that immediately. So it's really getting to know the people that are on the team with you and how, and your investment team as well. Maybe you just pull them in the beginning. What is your communication style? How do you regularly communicate? And then pull all those responses together and come up with a collective solution. I'm just, we just don't do that. We don't ask, like, how, how do you process information? How do you review it? What kind of response time do you expect when you have questions? Because they're across the board too. Some people expect an immediate response. Some people are like, I'm fine if you don't get back to me for five, seven days. Like, I know that you're busy, but we don't communicate that. And in the absence of information, we'll always assume the worst. That's just who we it's are true. as human it's beings. Our, it's <laughs> our human nature. All right. Well, respecting the clock. Let's let's rent, yes. wind this up in best practice kind of advice. So Carrie, you want to start us off for final thoughts? Yeah, final thoughts. I think um, you know, have have a plan for your your financial hygiene, right? Have use those checklists, create those checklists, find those checklists. Um, you got a toothbrush in there somewhere. Yeah, I use that. I use that. It was probably a bad joke, and I went on a I went on a little too far. But I used so so this uh, good, better, best analogy. So good is if you brush your teeth. Better is if you brush your teeth and floss. And then maybe best is you brush your floss and use that little water pick thing that nobody ever uses. So that's kind of the same way with your with your finances. Like you know, at a minimum, you know, have a checklist. Get your month closed. Do the review that you can. Do the best you can. And at best, you're really making a. a Here's another act like an ADL and act, activities of daily living, right? Right, right? So that it's not something we do every month. It's something that we just do. You know, we do it every day. And I think that you know, we talk a lot about, you know, key performance indicators, key metrics, benchmarks. These are very useful financial shorthand and they're they're easy to digest. They're easy to 
compute. They're easy to look at. Um, they're easy to, to interpret. You know, we think about like stop signs or speed limit. There's just bang, bang, bang. One number real quick. You can see how you're doing a dashboard in your car. How much fuel do I have? That type of thing. So you don't need to be looking at a full income statement every day. Nobody's going to do that. Not even me and probably not even Audra, but, you know, to do it in a fashion where it's summarized, it's digestible. I love a concept of this sort of daily or weekly summarized P&L where you're really just kind of monitoring, well, what are our sales and margins? Can we get at that? How are operating expenses trending and what's our net operating income look like? Four or five lines done. You know, don't be crazy. You can use estimates. But what it's doing is it's sort of training that muscle to say, you know, this is we're we're doing transactions every day as a brewery. You know, we're selling stuff. We're incurring every day. It doesn't happen like just because it's the end of the month that and we computed it doesn't mean it hadn't been happening this whole time. So I think the more frequency, the, the more you can look at this, your better opportunity to identify a problem before it becomes a bigger problem. You know, and step in and fix it. And I think, you know, those key metrics are are a great way to do that. Totally makes sense. Audra? And I'm going to come back to a point that Carrie had touched on earlier on in the podcast and talking about projections and forward-looking numbers um, and making sure that the model that you build, because this is a startup audience, the model that you're building as your projections and your performance should be utilized going forward and shouldn't be a one-time only sort of model that you've built. Build it in such a way that you can utilize it once you're open. So that is what I'm going to build upon and say, okay, when we're starting up, here are our projections, our performa. We're very familiar with the model now. Now that we're open, let's adapt it for the upcoming 12 months once we're open. We're starting to get in actual numbers now. Let's fill in those columns of the first one, two, three months. We got the first quarter of information in. Now let's project out the next 12 months after that. So rather than using it as a budget and a projection for one year and making it static, make it dynamic. Have your quarterly forecast roll forward every single quarter for the upcoming 12 months. So you have your 12 months of activity that you've projected both from the profit and loss statement and cash flow. You've gone through a quarter now, open, sit down, review what has happened over the last three months, and now project the next 12 months, not the nine months. Don't adapt nine months. Now we've just gone through quarter, let's say quarter three of 2023. What is quarter three 2024 going to look like based on what we learned from quarter three 2023? So you're always looking 12 months ahead which is going to help tremendously with your cash flow. And you're not treating your budgets and projections as an annual exercise that you have to do for an upcoming calendar year. It becomes part of your overall thinking fabric and operating fabric. It will also force you to look forward constantly rather than backwards. And that's what we need in order to survive as an industry. 100%. Awesome advice. I, I think the the structuring and the brushing of the teeth and, and paying mm -hmm. attention all the time and working on forward looking all the time is just the best advice. I think the practicality of making it happen is um, the challenge, but you've set out a, mm -hmm. a really clear plan for making that happen. So thank you both for the extra opportunity to discuss. I really appreciate that. Um, so a big thank you also to our listeners for joining us now and in the future for episode 20, Building Your Business Plan, Getting Into the Numbers, Part 2. 
of the Start a Brewery podcast. We invite you to join us for our next episode 21, which is actually going to be creating your marketing plan, which takes a slight turn from looking at the numbers to strategic plans about how to make those numbers real. This new episode will be released before dawn breaks on Tuesday, October the 10th. While you're anticipating the release of our next episode, feel free to visit the Start a Brewery website at startabrewery.com, a free resource for those who are looking to open or grow their breweries. Be sure to look through the task lists offered for each stage of the process, plan, act, open, and grow, at the educational resources and at the offerings from our savvy contributors in our growing library. You can also sign up for an occasional electronic update with a new Start a Brewery contributor list, content, events, and more great information on the contract contact page of the website. We also encourage you to explore the All About Beer website at allaboutbeer.com. Perhaps pop in to enjoy one of their excellent podcasts as well. In the meantime, this has been Laura Lodge and Candace Moon, almost in absentia, wishing you a terrific day and thanking you once again for joining us on our podcast journey to start a brewery. <laughs>